In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In the early 1940s, a young GI wrote to his sister from overseas. He was homesick and weary of the war, though he knew its necessity and importance. Trying hard to overcome a despair that might easily catch him unawares, he spoke of his endearing love for his church and the comfort, hope, and purpose that the stained glass window above the altar afforded him. The church was St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Selma, Alabama. And the window that he described was of four panels depicting events from St. Paul's life. It's been years since I've read that young GI's letter, but what I remember about it was the earnest expression of hope and the trust of a young man far from home under threat of death and destruction. He didn't speak to what those experiences were like. That was probably not proper reading material for a lady, even if it was his sister in that age and time. Instead, he spoke to the foundation of faith that the church had built for him and how that foundation had kept him from sinking into the mire of war. His letter described those four panel scenes from St. Paul's life, Saul, the persecutor of Stephen, the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul's preaching in Athens that we hear about today in our reading, and the shipwreck of Paul on the island of Malta. In the letter, the young GI pontificated a bit on how sitting in church Sunday after Sunday and gazing upon that window as a child had helped to form him into the Christian man that he was now. Persecutions, conversions, and miracles aside, it is the description of the evangelist Paul in that third panel that spoke most deeply to me in his letter. The panel shows Paul standing in the midst of a crowd as he gesticulates toward the sky, a scroll draped over his arm. In the background is a sailboat and the unmistakable ruins of the Areopagus in Athens. St. Paul has a triumphant look as he preaches about resurrection. And those around him respond in a variety of ways. One woman appears to have fallen to her knees in praise and worship. A white-headed man with a long beard seems to be listening, but his eyes are cast down and away from the saint, as if he is unsure of what he is hearing. A young woman listens intently, but with her arms crossed, a sure sign of the skepticism that Paul's preaching met with in Athens and in so many other places. The letter the young soldier wrote suggests he saw the war through the eyes of his faith, an opportunity to spread Christianity. That purpose seemed to give him hope. Wherever in the world he might be, there was always an opportunity to evangelize. 
He seemed to realize that not everyone would respond to the gospel in the same way. Some would receive it joyfully. Others might listen, but would be hesitant in acknowledging its truth. And then there were those who would outright reject the teachings of Christianity. The window at St. Paul's had served as a practical experience. It also reminded the young soldier of the parable of the sower. The seed was cast upon the ground, and some of it fell upon the thorns or scattered along a path where birds ate it up. But then there was the good soil where the seed took root. Over and over again, but especially maybe in Athens, this seems to be the experience of St. Paul. But it wasn't just simply his success. It was that purpose which seemed to give the young G.I. hope. In the course of Paul's life, he will journey on three distinct missionary tours. This trip to Athens comes in the midst of his second tour. His arrival there, however, was not planned and not intentional. He had been in Thessalonica, and things had gone south. Paul and Silas had had to flee for their lives under the cover of darkness to a town called Berea. Soon the Thessalonians found out where they were and went to the town, forming a mob and threatening Paul again. Paul escaped by boat, and the men who were helping him got him as far as Athens, where he went to wait for Timothy and Silas. Athens had once been considered the most renowned city of ancient Greece. Though past its prime in Paul's day, it was still an epicenter of philosophy, poetry, theater, and trade, and is considered the birthplace of our Western civilization. It had historical influence due to its education, culture, and prosperity. And, as Paul so eloquently points out, it allowed for a religious pluralism that was uncommon, even in its day. The story we hear this morning picks up with Paul waiting for his friends to catch up with him, but his waiting is not a passive one. Instead, he has continued his work of evangelism even in this highly epicurean society. In his daily walks around the city, he has noticed all the various religious idols, and he begins to talk about it with the other Jews that he meets and with anyone who will listen. The people of Athens may have been past their prime in leading the ancient world, but they still held themselves in great regard. They thought of themselves as intellectuals, thoughtful people who didn't have to check their brains at the door, Instead, they valued reason, logic, rationality. They argued from those places of intelligence, not from a place of mysticism or, God forbid, emotion. And Paul quickly understood this. 
And he began to reshape his Christian apologetic into a language more inviting for these Greeks. He understood their starting point, and he tailored his approach that it would be one more akin to what they could hear, not simply what he wanted to say. Not everyone listened. There were plenty who thought him an idiot, especially when he began to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. But there were also those who were intrigued with his teaching, and they wanted to hear more. They invited him to make a public presentation at the Areopagus, and that is what we read about this morning. The speech goes pretty well at first. He starts by flattering the Athenians, pointing out how religious they obviously are. They even have an altar inscribed to an unknown God. And it is this God that Paul hopes to offer a description of. He begins to talk about God as creator. He made the world and all that is in it. As the God above all gods, Lord of heaven and earth as life-giver, the one who will give life and breath to mortals. He situates God near them, and using a quote from one of their own poets, establishes them as children of God, for we too are his offspring. This, however, is where Paul's preaching will turn to meddling, as he tells them, to repent. Few of us like to be reminded of our need to repent, and as soon as we start hearing that language of repentance or sin or ignorance, we stop listening and we begin defending. To tell a city that prizes itself on its art and intellect that their idols are simply imaginative and their intelligence is overlooked ignorance does not bode well for Paul or his God. The part that we don't read this morning, the part that follows, after Paul has worked toward his rhetorical climax, which is the reassurance given to all by God's raising a man from the dead, the response of the Athenians is division. Some laugh at him and walk off making jokes about him. Others will say, let's talk about this again sometime. Sure, we want to hear more. None will profess a faith conversion. There will be no dramatic altar calls that day. Paul will leave, and he will head to Corinth. But there are a few who are convicted who will believe. Two in particular, a white-headed man with a long beard named Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman who has fallen to her knees in praise and worship named Damaris. Our faith challenges us and it brings us comfort. It challenges us because whenever we think we've arrived at the answer, whenever we think we know 
what we're supposed to do next, new questions unfold. Doubts begin to raise their heads. And we struggle once again to know God and his purposes for us. The comfort is that no matter how much we might wrestle with God, at some point we realize that in our wrestling, we actually have never let go of God. Even greater is the discovery that God never lets go of us. The challenge and comfort of God is the unknowable knowingness of God. It's not about success or failure. It's not about wisdom or ignorance. And in some small respect, I think that that is what the young GI from St. Paul's Selma knew. Far from home, on a battlefield in a foreign land, amidst a war beyond his control, a place where he didn't have answers and he couldn't understand, he realized the challenge and comfort of God. The God he had soaked up as a young child, sitting Sunday after peaceful Sunday in a pew, staring at a window. The God who had accompanied him as a young man halfway across the world to protect and preserve him and to help him to remember his purpose. The God he wrote about to his sister not in describing a war that she wouldn't understand or a horror she would never be able to appreciate, but in describing a hope and a strength that brought him comfort and her reassurance. That is not a God that the Athenians could ever appreciate because it is not a God who has the answers. It is not a God who can be intellectualized. But it is a God that we can have faith in. Amen.